Welcome, my name's James. I'm part of the team here um, at City Church. Um, I've, I've just come uh, from Bradley Stoke and the Bradley Stoke site. It was great to be with them. Uh, and we're continuing our series uh, in the book of Ephesians. So if you have uh, a Bible with you, um, you would, I'd encourage you to get that out on your phone. Um, it's also going to appear on the screen. Um, it's going to be the be- this next bit is the best thing that I'm going to say for the next half an hour um, because it, I didn't write it. Paul wrote it. Um, so if you listen to anything, you should listen to this next little bit because we're going to read from uh, verse 11. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that the Word of God has the power to change us. Um, so I don't want uh, the Bible just to be a pretext for what I have to say as if what I've got to say is more important This is the meat right here. Amen? Good. Let's read it. Uh, Starting from verse 11 uh, in chapter 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Lord, we pray that as we read your word, you would speak to us. Lord, we pray that you would give us a vision of what you want this church to be like, to look like, and how as believers we can continue to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got a friend called Caleb, uh, and uh, he started a challenge, a YouTube challenge, you can go and find it, it's called My 40 Days, and people would uh, message him with challenges that he had to do each day for 40 days, and one challenge, and it was really focused on getting through the fear of failure, so he had to do a whole load of things that he didn't really want to do. Um, 
And so one of the challenges that came through was that he had to try and blag his way onto the red carpet event of the last, the most recent Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie that came out. I think it was last year or maybe the year before. He had to blag his way onto the red carpet and see if he could get into the premiere without any tickets, with nothing. So he dresses up in a full tuxedo. I think there's a, fit, pic, a photo of him in a minute. There he is. There's Caleb. He, uh, he dresses up in a tuxedo, got his coat on, and he says to the camera, you can watch it later. He goes, right, I'm going to try and get myself uh, into the premiere with nothing. Uh, and he even brings a cameraman with him. Um, so there you go, and the video shows him uh, just walk straight through the security guards with his camera as if he was supposed to be there. And, and he, he then goes on to take some photos of some people that you might recognize. So here's uh, Sarah Jessica Parker <laughs> with Caleb on the right-hand side. Um, the next one was with uh, Graham Norton. <laughs> um, he managed to get into the premiere and he got invited to the after party as well. I mean, <laughs> incredible. Um, and when I spoke to him after, I saw him uh, in ooh, July last year. I said, what was that like? And he said, do you know what? I just knew I just wasn't supposed to be there. I said, well, I, well we could all have told you that, Caleb. But it was just this ongoing experience of not fitting in and not belonging, not knowing anyone else, just not fitting in. Everyone else was different to him. Without any ID, any VIP access, he was actually a little bit lost. I wonder if you've ever had that feeling, maybe not on a red carpet, but actually a sense that you just don't really belong, that perhaps the people that are around you look a little bit different to you, behave a bit differently to you, and actually you feel a little bit lost. Well, Paul, in this part of Ephesians, wants to deal with something of that nature, this theme of not really fitting in, bringing people together that don't really mix And he goes on to explain how Jesus brings people together, even though everything else in their life would appear different. And and so to understand something of what Paul is trying to communicate, both to the church in Ephesus and to us, we need to have some kind of understanding of, of the context and the background that Paul is speaking about. I don't know if you noticed, as we were looking, reading through that passage, there's some pretty major themes. I mean, it's a fairly complicated passage. Cheers, cheers Andy and Ben. Thanks for that. Um, but he particularly talks about the temple. He particularly talks about the temple and building things together. And in the Old Testament, the presence of God in the Old Testament times could be found in the temple in Jerusalem. Although before then, right at the beginning in Genesis, we see a relationship between humanity and God that was perfect. Talks about God walking in the cool of the evening. Like there's this perfect relationship, this perfect community between humanity and God. And then the fall happens. Adam and Eve, they disobey God. There's separation. They're cast out of the garden. And and if you follow the story of the Bible, uh, we see that the the people of God, the Israelites, are, are put into slavery. And they finally get released from Egypt. And Moses, I mean, this is a fairly quick potted history of the Old Testament. But Moses receives the law on Mount Sinai where he meets God. And, and uh, he's told to construct 
uh, a tabernacle, which is basically a large tent that could be moved around where God himself would live. And so we have uh, the tabernacle, and, uh, and they're able to move the tent around because they're waiting to get into the land that they've been promised. Uh, and eventually they enter the promised land, uh, and they get their king, David, and, and when David dies, his son builds this enormously beautiful temple, his son called Solomon, uh, and they built it in Jerusalem, uh, the capital city of Israel. And so that's where the Old Testament temple was. And the interesting thing about the temple was is that, really, if you wanted to get any access to the temple, you had to be a Jew. And they constructed it in that way. You see, God in the Old Testament had chosen the Jews, the people of Israel, to be his covenant people. He gave them the law. He revealed something of who he was to those people, told them how to live, and to live in such a way that it would bless not just them, but the nations of the world. And so they would come to the temple, and they would come to worship him, and worship, and come into the very presence of God, which dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And so there's going to be an image on the screen that just gives you an idea of what this temple might have looked like. And actually, you don't see this first bit, but right on the outside, it's not there, was what we call the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. They were able to uh, mill around there, but because they weren't Jews, they weren't allowed any further. You then had another court where the women, the Jewish women, could be, and then you have the court of the Israelites, where you would have, if you were a Jewish man by birth, and you'd observed the law, followed the rituals, you were ceremonially clean, for instance, like circumcision, then you would be allowed to be in the court of the Israelites. But the Gentiles couldn't go any further. In fact, there was inscriptions on the wall that said, if you go beyond this door, we will kill you. That's the hostility that there was between the Jews and the Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile, if you were a non-Jew, you couldn't get any closer to God. You didn't obey the law. You had no right. Your family background, there was no lineage in terms of the family of Israel. You couldn't pass through. And so in this part of Ephesians, what we've already noticed, what you hopefully have already picked up, is that Paul is describing the wall of hostility that there is between Jew and Gentile. And this wasn't some kind of you know, casual dislike for someone down the road. This was like full blow and hatred. So if there was a Jew and a Gentile, if there was a mixed marriage, the Jewish family would hold a funeral for their child because they were considered dead, not part of our family. And in some Jewish circles, and this just shows like the intensity of this hatred, the Gentiles were said to be extra tinder for the fires of hell. That's how some Jewish circles regarded non-Jews. That is the level of hatred between these two groups of people. So you've got the court of the Gentiles on the outside. You've then got the court of the Israelites. 
And then inside that, you've got the holy place where the priests would offer sacrifices to God. And then within the holy place, you had what we call the holy of holies, the sanctuary of the Lord, where God's presence would dwell. There was a thick curtain that separated the two things. And not just anyone could go into the holy of holies. You had to be the high priest descended from Aaron who had been chosen to mediate between God and man. You had to be of that family line. And so he would be allowed to go in one day a year on the Day of Atonement. I mean, there's some serious criteria here. One day a year, and he would offer three different sacrifices. So one sacrifice for his own sin, a sacrifice for the sins of the priests, and then a sacrifice for the sins of all the people of Israel. And he would do that once a year. And they even tied a rope around the high priest's ankle because the presence of God was so powerful that if you were unclean, God couldn't be in the sight of sin. If you were unclean and you hadn't observed the law properly, you would just drop dead in his presence. And so they would wrap a rope around his ankle to pull him out just in case. It was serious stuff. And so we hear that there's, there's not only a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, this furious hatred and hostility, but there's a separation between humanity and God as well. We, you couldn't approach him. And because God is holy and perfect, and you and I are not, we have a problem. And Paul knows this, and he sees this, and is going to address it. And he's going to take his focus away from you as an individual and your personal salvation. And he's going to start to develop a picture of what the church should be like. What does the people of God look like? And he starts off in verse 11. And Paul's speaking directly to the Gentiles. And this is what he says. Really takes the gloves off here. He's pulling no punches. He says, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship. You were foreigners to the promises of God. You were without hope and without God. That is who you are. Do you see how something, though, in the way that he's formed that sentence, something has changed? He, he, he says it in the past tense. Remember, you were from, from the time of Abraham, Gentiles were separated, excluded, foreigners, without hope. But something has changed. This is how you used to be, separate from God, as good as dead, without any hope or a future. And yet Paul mirrors what we read last week in verse 4. And he says, but now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were far off. You were excluded. You were separate. You were without hope and without God. He's speaking to us. That was my situation. I was excluded. I was a foreigner. I was separate from Christ. And it is only through the blood of Christ that we can draw near. And so there's this weird 
paradox, isn't it, almost? Because if you just cast your mind back to chapter 1, I'm pretty sure we read that, that we are all chosen, loved before the foundation of the world, and yet at the very same time, somehow we're separate. So you were loved, you were known in your mother's womb, and yet you were separate from Christ. How do, how do these two things come together? And what we see is, and if you read, if you know your Bible, there are some ancient promises that God says in which he has a heart for all people, from all nations. It's wonderful. In, when he has an encounter with Abraham, he says, all people on earth will be blessed through you. In, in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel prophesies that two sticks are going to be made one in the hand of God, that the chosen people of God, but also all nations are going to be made one in the hand of God. And then in Ephesians 1, he says, he made known to us the mystery of his will, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when all times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. To bring all things together, it's at the very heart of God. And so we see that heart, and yet God seems to give people over to their sin. Gives people over to their fleshly desires, the things that they want. He says, if you want that, you can have it. And there's something of that separation that set in right from when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, but also for us. We build separation, not just between us as people, but between us and God. And Charles Spurgeon described this separation like a mountain rage, and he said, you were without Christ, and your, sti- your sins stood like a mountain range, whose black and rugged cliffs threatened the very skies. There fell a drop of Jesus' blood upon it, and it all vanished in a moment. The sins of all your days had gone in an instant by the application of the precious blood. The separation that you and I have built over our lives, like a mountain range, has vanished with the blood of Christ, and we draw near to him. He has brought us near to him. And so we see two things that Paul wants the church in Ephesus to understand because they're dealing with a very unique set of circumstances with the hatred that is there between Jew and Gentile. But it speaks to us too, and he, and he talks about two things. He talks about a new humanity and a new relationship. You see in verse, four, uh, in verse 13 and 14, Jesus removed the barrier the wall of hostility. And so he's obviously speaking of, of the physical wall in the temple, destroying that. Jesus and his death on the cross paid for sin, brought unity and brought d- death to the wall of hostility, removed it. But he also removed the division in a human heart, removed the division that would separate us together a new humanity 
No longer did you have to have a certain family line. No longer was there superiority like, I've been a Christian for 25 years. How long have you been a Christian for? Or, you know, things like that. There, were, there was no family lineage. There were no rules or regulations. No rituals that you had to do. It was all removed by Jesus' death and his blood on the cross. And in its place, the division has been replaced with one new humanity. And so by doing that, he's made peace. He's made peace. A new humanity is formed without rules, regulations, laws, rituals, family history. Jesus replaces hostility amongst people groups with peace. A hostility that lasted for centuries has been replaced. And peace, it's not just an emotion. It's not just like a feeling that you get, oh, I feel like peaceful and a little bit rested. You can't travel around the world and find yourself and find peace. Jesus is really, Paul is really clear. Peace is a person. Peace is a person. The uniqueness of the Christian faith is that we come to Jesus who is our peace. We come to a person. He doesn't, bring, he doesn't even bring peace necessarily or make peace, but is our peace. Between us and God and against people who wouldn't necessarily like each other. So he brings about a new humanity and can you see that he's, he's speaking about the church? He's speaking about this new humanity. He's talking about the church. And secondly, he talks about a new relationship. The separation that was there in the temple, that was separated between walls and curtains and ceremonial rituals and things you had to do, he tore away that separation. We're not required to live our life through the atonement of a priest once a year. We're not required to make animal sacrifices. We're not even required to wash ourselves, which I would still suggest you should do, but we're not even required to clean ourselves up. To be in the presence of God, you had to be perfect. And in Christ Jesus, the Father saw a perfect man who had never sinned in his life, who would become sin for us in order that those who put their faith in Jesus may be found and declared righteous, clean, forgiven, restored, rescued, and brought near. We have all of that in Christ. There's nothing of ourselves, in and of ourselves, that does any of that. It is only found in Christ. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. A new humanity and a new relationship with God. And so Paul goes on to say, you were far off, you Gentiles, you who once had no hope and no future, you are now citizens, not foreigners. You are now members of the household and not strangers. And the holy of holies that was once in the temple is now your heart. That in your heart, 
God chose to dwell in you. Isn't that amazing? That, thank you, it is amazing, that the presence of God, which was so powerful that if you were unclean, you would die, is now living and dwelling in your heart and in the body of believers, the church. It's why we get excited in worship. It's why we put our hands in the air and go sometimes a little bit nuts. Because the living God is in you. The author of the Bible is in you. It's incredible. And so we begin to see Paul's vision for the church here. He talks about the church being built on the teaching of the Bible. On the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's why the Bible is so important. We're to build our church on that. We're to build our church on our chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, who brings everything together, joins everything together through his blood. We're to be united together. If all we are is a group of people who share similar interests, then what, what actually are we? Are we just an organization? Sometimes we need to redefine what unity actually means. And what unity means, according to Paul, is sharing what you have outside of yourself. Sharing what you have outside of yourself. That's what unity is to Paul. It's not that both Ben and I have facial hair and and that's what joins us together. It's that we have Christ. It's the thing that is outside of ourselves that brings unity So there are going to be people in this room that are completely different to you, who like different things to you, eat different foods, speak different languages, look different, speak different, are different, and yet you are united because you have Christ that joins you together. Unity is sharing something outside of yourself. It's why the Jews and the Gentiles were able to come together, because Everything in their history, everything in their, in their logical minds would say, this does not make sense. And yet it's the blood of Christ that brings them together. And the fourth thing is that the church is to be filled with the Spirit. Do you notice that in, in the very last verse, in verse 22? And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. We're to be a church filled by his spirit. That's the mark of a church, to be filled with the spirit of God. We're to know him. We're to live in step with what God has for us. And so, I don't know what, you know, I don't know what your approach is to church, but I was thinking, what are the three, what are things that we can take away and what we need to fight for? as a church. And I was thinking about the difference between dream and fantasy. Like if you have a dream, there are steps that you can take because you believe that God is calling you to something. But a fantasy, there's no process there. There's no end point there. It's just a, it's just a fictional thing. And sometimes when we really think, what, what we want to do is, as a church, we want to fight for the vision that is in the Bible. We want to fight for it. And when you fight for it, sometimes scars appear and bruises come. And there are people that perhaps you just don't get on with. And it feels like people are elbowing you and it doesn't make sense. 
But that's, that's the marks of fighting for a dream. Not just a fantasy. The church isn't a fantasy. Oh, that's a lovely thought, but we're never going to get there. Paul says we're to be a church that lives by the Spirit. And we're to fight for it. And so firstly, the church is to be protected. We're being built together into one body. We're to look out for each other. We're to care for each other. We're to check in on how people are doing. Don't just assume that people are okay. We're called to protect one another as the body. The devil loves nothing more than to see division and separation in the church. It's what he's fighting for. But we want to be loving towards each other. We want to be slow to judge, quick to forgive. We want to maintain integrity in the church. We want to protect it. Secondly, the church is to be cherished. The church is to be cherished. It's the dwelling place of God. It's not a man-made organization. It wasn't my idea. The church is to be cherished. And I want to challenge you. How, do you. how do you speak of the church? How do you view it? Do you whinge and complain about it? Or do you cherish it? Now, there are always problems There are always things that go wrong because we are just people. And if you haven't experienced that here yet, you haven't been here long enough. You know, it's what's going to happen. But we are to cherish it. You know, the grass isn't greener somewhere else. The grass is greener when you get your fingers stuck into the soil and start to cherish it and work at it and contribute and serve That's when the grass goes green. It's when you give yourself to it and say, this is the body of Christ. This is what I'm giving my life to. It's not a man-made thing. This is God's church. Billy Graham, an apt quote, Billy Graham said this of the church. If it's a place where Christ is preached, if it's a place where Christ is exalted, then we are to give our all to the work of the church. We're to give our all. Do you know that? Do you see that? It's not something that you just dip in and out of. You give yourself to it. The body of Christ. The dwelling place of God. And finally, the church is to be open. It's not just reserved for a certain group of people who have a a good family background. The evidence of the gospel isn't just the message that we preach. But it's in who we are as a community. You are the evidence of the gospel sitting right here. We're a ragtag bunch of people with all different walks of life. But we're to love each other. We're to love God. And we're to welcome more and more people into this wonderful community and family that is the church. It's to be open. And John Stott, and I'm going to finish with this, he said, I wonder if anything is more urgent today for the honor of Christ and for the spread of the gospel than that the church should be a single new humanity, a model of human community. A family of reconciled brothers and sisters who love their father and love each other. 
the evident dwelling place of God by His Spirit, only then will the world believe in Christ, the peacemaker. Only then will God receive the glory due to His name. Shall we stand? I'm going to pray. And there may be things that have spoke to you personally. Perhaps the idea that God lives in your heart. Perhaps it's that actually you felt like you have had to achieve all these different things somehow to have a relationship with God. And if you have that sense in you, then I'd love to to pray for you. And there are people here that would love to pray for you. But actually Paul's heart in this passage is to take our eyes off our own individual lives and to see the church for what it is. And so, rather than going for a a personal, individual response, I want us to pray. And I want us to pray for the church. Because we are all broken people who make mistakes. We've got issues, a whole range of them. And what needs to happen is we need a group of people, the church, to pray for itself. That we are a new humanity And we've been given a new relationship. And the world needs to see that. And so those things, of it needs to be protected. It needs to be cherished. And it needs to be open. Perhaps even in your heart, you need to be warm to the idea of cherishing the church. Perhaps you've dealt with and you've had experience of really bad things in the church. And that's not okay. It's not okay for the church to treat people like that. And, but actually, when bitterness sets in your heart, it blinds you to what the, tr- the church actually is, which is God's chosen people and God's dwelling place. And so there needs to be a reverence. Think about the temple. Think about how much they had to do just to even approach God. There was a reverence there, wasn't there? It's a holy dwelling. The church is a holy dwelling. And God wants us to remind us of that. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. Jesus, we thank you for your church. Lord, we thank you that you instituted a new humanity that we get to belong to. That we get to be part of. Lord, that we don't have to go through rituals and laws. We don't have to come from a particular family or background. We don't even have to have been a Christian for more than a minute to be part of your church. And Lord, we want as City Church in Bristol, here in Cotton, Lord, we want a picture and a vision of your church. We want to know what it is to cherish your church. We want to know what it is to be part of of a relationship and a humanity that cherishes you, that puts you above every other thing. And Lord, we want to be a church that tells people about Jesus. We want to be a church that has massive open doors, that people are flooding in. Lord, we want that to be our story. We want that to be our story, Lord. We want hundreds of people to come to know Christ through the church, through the proclamation of the gospel. Lord, we pray for that. Why don't we just where we are, why don't we just pray for that? Why don't we pray for that? Why don't we pray for the church to continue to build? 
to continue to expand. Lord, we pray for that, Lord God. Come and fill us with your spirit. Come and fill this church with the power of God. We pray for the extension of your kingdom, God.